Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is John Brush, the resident urban ecologist and park naturalist here at Quinta Mazatlan. John provides environmental education to high school and college groups that come through. He also grows native plants for the purpose of rewilding and enhancing the park. This week, you'll find him providing bird walks to a number of visitors that are in town for the Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival. And he was kind enough to carve out some time for us today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Just before this, we took a little walk around the premises. and We saw some green jays. We saw some of the clay-colored thrush, uh, some chachalacas. Are these birds that people can expect to see when they visit? Absolutely, yeah. These are some of the kind of the what I would call the core set of birds that people will see when they come to Quinta Mazatlan and just to the region as a whole. These are some of our favorite South Texas specialty birds. Nice. When did you first take an interest in birding? I got into birding when I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. Um, So my dad taught ornithology, which is the study of birds at a local university here in South Texas. And so I was going out with him from an early age. I usually say that I really started birding when I was 11. He took me on a trip, birding trip into Mexico. And that was like a eye opening, eye opening moment. You remember some of the things you saw there? Yeah, yeah. So it was during a what's called a Christmas bird count. Mm-hmm. So you go out and get all these birders together and you cover an area and yeah. count everything that you see, species, quantities, estimate as best as possible. And we were walking up. There's this biosphere reserve in Mexico called El Cielo. Mm-hmm. And it's this cloud forest. So we're mm-hmm. walking up this steep, rocky trail. We're seeing this bird called a gray-collared Picard. Hmm. And it's a type of flycatcher, or at least it was considered a flycatcher at the time. It's about, you know, six inches, but it's a beautiful gray and black plumage with some white spots. And all the birders were getting super excited about seeing it. And so a little impressionable 11-year-old me, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. We saw the gray-collared Picard, and I was telling everybody (laughs) we saw that later. So, yeah, that's kind of like my formative bird, or that's what I would call my spark bird, probably. Okay. From there, was it kind of a natural progression where you just started more frequently going birding? Yeah, yeah. So my dad was very good at making time for me to go birding with him at all these local spots and going into Mexico. We pretty much went into Mexico Mexico every year Hmm. for about 10 years straight when I was a teen. Um, So... Yeah, he was he was really important to to getting me into birding and molding that yeah, interest. Absolutely. If you think beyond that spark bird, what do you think your earliest memory of a bird is? I think my earliest memory is not necessarily of a bird, but of a bird nest. Okay. And so my dad, as part of his studies, would study nesting birds in the area. And there's mm-hmm. this bird called the Altamira Oriole. Mm-hmm. So it's that same bright orange as a Baltimore Oriole or a Bullock's Oriole. Yeah. Um, really vibrant bird. But they build these very long hanging nests. Mm. Uh, they can be up to two feet long sometimes, oh, and they wow. hang like a bag from a tree. Okay. And so my dad studies them. They're special for our part of the country. Yeah. And I would go out and hang out with him while he was watching 
making these nests. Yeah. So I would play with the ants, but I'd look up and he'd be like, "Oh, John, there's a there's a Ultimate Oriole coming into the nest there." So really, it's the it's the nest hanging over this these open areas in yeah. this tall tree that is some, one of my earlier birding memories. Hmm. It's a very distinctive nest. Yeah, they're really cool. Once you got further into birding, maybe it was during one of these many visits to Mexico. But what what do you think of? as a particularly memorable encounter you had with the bird, maybe beyond the Picard you mentioned earlier? That's a really tough question. That's a good one. You can share two if you like. <laughs> um, memorable encounters with a bird. They may have even been here at Quinta Mazatlan. I'm going to try to split it. So there's one in Mexico where we were walking through a, a Mayan ruin mm -hmm. and we got to see a, a toucan. Oh. So it was a we were in this park by ourselves around these Mayan ruins and a toucan came up into a tree and it was just like out of nowhere. It's just one of those ridiculous life experiences like I got to do this. I'm incredibly fortunate and lucky. Yeah. Um here in the here in the US, I went out on a on a boat in the Laguna Madre which is off of the Gulf of Mexico here in, in South Texas. Okay. And we were birding this very kind older birder let me their really nice binoculars <laughs> to look through yeah. at a at a roseate spoonbill, which is oh. this pink bird, incredibly vibrant. Yeah. And that was kind of like a whoa moment for me because I was using like kiddo binoculars before yeah. that. But then you get these like fancy birder binoculars and the image is crystal clear and you're getting yeah. to see all the feathers. And so, and it's just the kindness too. Of yeah. A birder, an older birder being, being generous with their, their binoculars. Sure. An introduction into what is uh, common in the birding community. Absolutely. Having people like that. I've had more than one encounter like that. And it is, it is nice, especially when someone shares their, I don't even remember what brand it was, but uh, it was one of those fancy brands, maybe Swarovski or something like that, <laughs> one of their scopes. Yeah. And I got to scope. It was the first time I saw, uh, I believe it was a ruby crown kinglet. Mm. And they had scoped it, and you could just see so much detail there. <laughs> that, that bird was so far away. And my binoculars at the time, similar to yours probably, could barely make out the little splotch. But then with that scope, I could see every little detail. Yeah, Such a beautiful those, bird. Yeah, yeah, it's a special. Now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, John will tell us about a bird that can be found here at Quinta Mazatlan, the clay-colored thrush. And actually, there's an anaqua tree right above us. And a few minutes ago, there were a small number of them, three or four, feeding on these uh, berries. Is this, is this where they're usually found? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we happened to pick a anaqua tree that was in fruit. We did not do this on purpose. <laughs> but then we started hearing the clay-colored thrushes flying in. They'd give this cluck call. Mm -hmm. They also give this kind of little high-pitched seat call yeah. as well. And they just love the anaqua fruits. They're kind of this orangey-yellow berry, you know, about the size of, say, a pomegranate mm -hmm. seed. So they're they're pretty small, but the thrushes just absolutely love them. <laughs> so these thrushes, they'll commonly found in trees? Yeah, yeah. So the thrushes, I like to compare just because a lot of the northern and eastern parts of the U.S. are familiar with American robins. Yeah. I like to compare clay-colored thrushes as kind of the tropical version of an American robin. So they're mostly found to our south mm -hmm. in Mexico and down into Central America, and they yeah. just barely get into the U.S. here in South Texas. Okay. But in many respects, they kind of act, and they even look fairly mm -hmm. similar to a robin in that same general size, same general shape, but yeah. their main feature is that they're they're all brown. They have this beautiful clay-colored breast, yeah. belly, and a little bit of streaking on the throat, but then it's a brown back. 
I was going to ask as far as field marks are yeah. concerned to distinguish the clay-colored thrush from other birds of similar size or American robin. What would you point people towards paying attention to? Yeah, that overall brown coloration. Mm -hmm. So as the name implies, they have yeah. this kind of pale clay-colored front mm -hmm. side. So that's like their underside, their breast, their belly, yeah. um, under their wings a little bit. And then on the top, it's a darker brown. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a contrasting brown. But other than that, they don't have a whole lot of like really strong patterning. Yeah. Um, and they have a little bit of white and black streaking just underneath the chin on their throat. Okay. But that's one that you, you really only see if you get a really good look at a, at a thrush. Yeah. yeah. And then the bill is kind of a brownish, dark color in contrast with what American Robin might have with that bright yellow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it can be. It's kind of a pale, a pale color, but it's not that bright yellow like an American Robin. Okay. Just heard a, a mockingbird go off there. Oh, that the chuck background. call. <laughs> I do hear it. I think it's that tree over there. So they eat these berries from the Anaqua tree. What other things are they feeding on? So they feed on a lot of other fruits from mm -hmm. local trees. Um, they also eat a lot of insects. Okay. So they're going to be working their way through lawns mm -hmm. and even eating like earthworms sometimes, oh. like an American robin. Yeah. Um, but they're also just eating a lot of general insects that are found in leaf litter, in lawns, or mm -hmm. on leaves uh, in trees. So you're likely to find them hopping around in a tree, maybe even on the ground. Where do they usually nest? They usually nest in a tree. Mm -hmm. So they choose a horizontal branch, mm -hmm. and they make kind of your standard cup nest mm -hmm. where there's some larger twigs as kind of the base, and then they, they weave a nice little cup into it with more fibrous materials, yeah. whether those are grasses or, in our area... A lot of birds like to use bits of palm frond oh. because there's these nice twiny little bits that come off at the end. So yeah, they'll yeah. weave that in there. And the nest can be anywhere from, you know, just 10 feet off the ground mm -hmm. to, you know, upwards of 30 feet off the ground. Okay. So, so pretty it's pretty varied. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something where the male and the female will assist in building the nest? Yeah, they'll both assist in building, they'll both incubate, mm. um, and then they'll both bring food to the, to the babies as to well. The young. How big are these clutch sizes? Anywhere between two to five eggs, okay. typically. So probably on average, it's three to four. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they're, they're mostly going to hatch two to three babies, three to four babies on a good year when it's nice and wet. Mm. When they grow up, are the young sticking around for long near the parents? So that's, that's an interesting question. You know, when they immediately fledge... Mm -hmm. which is when they leave the nest, they've grown enough feathers, they've developed enough to be able to leave the nest on their own, hop around, fly around a little bit. Yeah. Um, they still get fed by the parents for a little while after okay. that. Um, but within that same, what's called a hatch year, mm -hmm. so within that same calendar year as them being born, they'll be on their own, okay. essentially. So it's like a lot of songbirds, a lot of these passerines, yeah. like thrushes and warblers and vireos, where, yeah, they get fed a little bit once they fledge, but pretty soon they're independent and on their own. Mm. Do they stray very far from their original, where they were born? That's a good question. And, and that's something that we're trying to figure out mm -hmm. a little bit more. There's not a whole lot known about this about species. They're kind of an understudied, understudied species. Mm -hmm. But they certainly do move around. One thing that we've noticed here at Quinta Mazatlan in particular mm -hmm. is that a lot of young birds show up in late summer. 
Mm-hmm. So these are, again, birds that were born earlier that year. That year yeah. And they kind of congregate in these flocks here at Quinta Mazatlan. Mm. Then we're thinking that they come from the surrounding neighborhoods oh. around Quinta Mazatlan where they're nesting in these nice tall trees in people's sure. yards. And then they're coming into Quinta Mazatlan in the late summer when the, there's an abundance of fruits yeah. and food for them to eat. So how far are they coming from? That's the question. Is it miles? Is it hundreds of yards? Yeah. Good thing to try to figure out. And speaking of that, you've mentioned off air that some local ornithologists have an interest in these thrushes here and they're currently studying them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So a little brief background on clay-colored thrush. This is a species that in the 80s and 90s was a very rare bird. Birders would see one and they'd call each other. This is back on landlines. There's a hotline you'd call (laughs) and say, hey, I got clay-colored thrush at such and such park here in South Texas. But just within my lifetime, they've become a a backyard bird, Hmm. essentially, to where they're everywhere. Hmm. And so the reason for why these ornithologists or these scientists are interested is just because they've exploded in population. So we want to learn more about their food preferences, their habitat preferences, how far do they disperse um, out into the environment from from a place like Quinta Mazatlan, just because, again, it's a new member of the bird community. And so there's a lot we don't know about them in the Hmm. area. Is that something where they visit once a year, multiple times a year? So usually for a while we were bird banding. Uh So we were catching these birds. There's federal permits involved. There's state permits involved to be able to do this. Um, So gone through all the proper channels on that. But for a while they were coming in and banding birds every month. Mm. We've kind of petered that off into once a season maybe. So once in the fall, spring, summer. But all told we've caught over 240 of these clay-colored thrushes oh, wow. over the past four years here at Quinta Mazatlan. And we've gotten some cool data on them. So one was recited. The reason we're doing these color bands, so they're doing color banding, which is they take a colorful plastic band mm-hmm. and they have different color combinations. Okay. So you'd have like yellow over blue on the right leg, and then you might have red over silver on the left leg. Okay, And so it's a unique combination So if someone gets a photo of that bird or just even sees that bird, and then I think you might have gotten a a clay color thrush poop on your equipment there. Speaking of clay-colored thrushes, they they knew we were talking about them. How funny. Uh, but they've... So anyways, you, if you get the look at their legs, you yeah. get that look at the unique color combination. And so we've had birders that have photographed them upwards of 17 miles away from where we banded them oh, originally wow. here at Quinta Mazalan. So that gives you some idea as far as how far they're... Exactly. Traveling. How far they're dispersing out into the environment. Hmm. For this last question, I'd like to ask you a little more about Quinta Mazatlan one of nine locations in the World Birding Center. For our listeners who have not heard of the World Birding Center, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So the way I would describe it is the World Birding Center was an organization that started in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we had all these individual great birding sites in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. But we thought, well, we have all these individuals. Why don't we group together and form some sort of cohesive label um, to attract birders and other ecotourists down to the area to visit all these different sites. So the World Birding Center is nine sites, like you said, across across the valley um, that are kind of grouped under that umbrella, Mm -hmm. um, but they're run by different organizations. So some are city-owned, like Quinta Mazatlan, were owned and operated by the city of McAllen. Others are run by state government, 
So Texas Parks and Wildlife. Okay. Some are run more by like nonprofits and that sort of thing. So it's a kind of a just a way to group all these different birding centers together and bring birders down to enjoy the really diverse bird community that we have in the area. Okay. So it's more of branding yeah. to identify it, but not so much as you mentioned it does not imply that everything is connected or under the same umbrella as right. far as a city or state or... Yeah, correct. exactly. Okay. That's a great way to summarize it. It's it's a brand. So as you mentioned, it's located here in McAllen. Can you tell us about some of the environmental features here at Quinta Mazatlan? I like to think about things in terms of change yeah. over time. And it also gives you a little idea of kind of what the area was like and has kind of changed throughout time. So just a little backstory at Quinta Mazatlan is... It was a private residence. It was a it was a mansion mm -hmm. um, that someone owned, and it was all citrus when it was first built. But now it's more of what we would call this Tamalipan thorn forest. So mm -hmm. we have some tall trees, um, some nice woodlands here, really dense foliage. Uh, we also have some ponds that the city of McAllen has built and put in various water features, mm -hmm. um, and then we have kind of what we're calling our rewilding or restoration zone where we're trying to support birds and butterflies and other pollinators. Hmm. And then there's a lot of flexibility there as far as what's being grown. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I guess we'll get into that in a minute when we talk more about your role here. So you're the resident urban ecologist and park naturalist. What does that kind of entail? Just like an urban area is extremely diverse, right? There's parks, there's businesses, there's residential area, there's apartment complexes, and there's all these different people using this space and doing all these different things. As an urban ecologist, I feel like I am very much that jack of all trades, <laughs> and I do a lot of different things. But environmental education, habitat management, growing plants to enhance and um, rewild the park. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty diverse mix of <laughs> duties and it keeps things fresh. Yeah. When you think of your day-to-day -day duties, what's something you look forward to each day? I really look forward to taking care of my plants. That's, yeah. they're, they're my babies, you know, <laughs> they're, they're my little babes that I grow from seed a lot of the time. And so I really love getting out there, watering them, seeing how they've grown, mm -hmm. trying to germinate new species to use in the park and just increase the diversity of plants, which ultimately is going to increase the diversity of birds and butterflies and wildlife that are, are using the area and people are able to enjoy seeing. Sure. You mentioned rewilding a particular portion of Quinta Mazatlan, and that's where you're kind of growing a lot of these, would you call them seedlings? Yeah. How many different plants are you growing at a time? Do you just grow like, let me make 50 of this one, I and can... then next round I'll make 50 of this one? Yeah, I kind of go in batches okay. just to try out different things. I'm still learning as, I, as I'm going sure. uh, um, about how to do a different species. So I'll do like 50 of this certain type of tree, and then I'll do like another 50 of another type of tree. I'll yeah. try to start some wildflower plugs to grow and, and just kind of mix and, mix and match and learn as, as I go. Is that something where you'll keep track that I planted 50 of these and 37 of them took? Yeah. Yeah. I do try to keep track of like germination rates mm. and get an idea of like, oh, did this method of scar... So, so not to get super technical, but this sure. is something I get super excited about. But like, so some seeds need different treatments to get them to grow. Okay. Right. So one of our very common bean trees is called the Texas ebony. And it's okay. got a very hard, dry bean yeah. that when it's matured in nature, just over time, that hard shell 
kind of wears down, allows water in, and then that plant germinates and yeah, grows. Yeah, yeah. But if you're trying to actively grow it and grow a whole bunch at the same time, yeah. you can mechanically speed that up. Speed that up. So I file off a little bit of that seed coat <laughs> and allow the water to to permeate into it. Other mm. plants, you let them like kind of sit seeds you let them kind of sit in fermenting water for a little while okay. like goop yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's like bacteria and things that Breaks kind of down. break it down a little bit and then you grow them so hmm. there's a lot of different methods to try out for different things so even in your one batch of 50 you might try a couple different methods to right. see what i can yeah mechanical scarification sometimes people do hot water treatments where you put them into hot water for a little while and then let them cool off and then okay. you plant them immediately after that when you think of the plants that you are going to germinate and grow in this area to rewild this area. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I did just hear a buff-bellied hummingbird. There's a little, oh, is ticking, that that little, little ticking sound over there, over my shoulder. I heard it too, but I don't see any movement. Oh, I, I hear it again. again. Right? I'm not sure if the mics are going to pick it up, but yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a soft ticking. We say it sounds like two stones kind of clinking together. They do this. And you call it a buff-bellied? This is a buff-bellied hummingbird. And this is another one of the birds that people come down to South Texas to see. Because globally, they're mostly found along the Gulf of Mexico, going from kind of central Texas coast all the way down into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. So this is one of the few places in Texas that even that you might see it. Yeah, yeah. South Texas is where pretty much are. exclusively. Hmm. Coming back to the plants. Sorry. Just no worries. <laughs> to give us an idea, a question out of ignorance, the rough area, like how much landmass is there and then how many different plants, I guess. So I guess how much landmass is there and how many different plants are going to go into there ideally as you start because you've got this process where you're putting in different types of plants. So that's another another <laughs> thing that we're doing this iterative learning, right? Where we're trying out different things and seeing what works, what doesn't work. So it depends on what kind of the goal of the area is. So if I want it to be like a really dense forest, I'm probably going to do a lot of plants into a small area and I'm going to use a lot of trees, a lot of woody shrubs. If I'm doing more of like a traditional landscaped butterfly garden, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a little more evenly spaced. There's going to be more space between plants to really let each individual shine, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and give them plenty of room to to reach their full full body. So yeah, it kind of depends on what the purpose of the land is going to be and and why we want those plants to go there. And if you think about the sheer number of different plants is that more limited by the number of native species in the area or is that more limited just by your your efforts i guess how far do you want to go it's with diversity yeah there's so there's over 1200 native plants okay. in our area so there's, there's a lot to choose from <laughs> okay. so it's more limited by me and what i'm able to <laughs> able That's to fair. grow and able to uh, acquire okay. in order to plant them yeah How did you get into a position like this? So I, I was extreme. I've been extremely lucky my entire life, basically, <laughs> extremely fortunate. And I was doing a, a high school like summer project set to me by my dad mm-hmm. <laughs> to study golden fronted woodpeckers, which okay. are very similar to a red bellied woodpecker or a Gila woodpecker, mm-hmm. kind of a medium sized woodpecker with a nice strong barring on their back. Yeah. Anyway, so I was coming through and I was watching their nests here in the park. They like to nest in the old dead palm trees. Okay. And my now boss saw me walking around with binoculars and was like, (laughs) you should apply for a summer job. And I was like, sure, I'll apply. And they've kept me on ever since pretty much. Yeah. How cool. How many years have you been here? 
going on 12 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. But so full-time, really, five years, yeah. yeah. So you've really seen this place grow and develop. Yeah, and it's also helped me grow and develop as a, as a birder, as a naturalist, and, you know, hopefully just as a, as a person, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we go, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about Quinta Mazatlan? For Quinta Mazatlan, a, a big goal of ours is to educate the community about nature, about science, caring about the wildlife that, that we have here in the area. Mm -hmm. And we really want to serve as a demonstration site of how people can go about helping nature. Okay. Um, not only for the purpose of being good for wildlife, but ultimately good for people too, right? Yeah. We, we rely on these ecosystems. Sure. <laughs> so serve as a demonstration of what people can do in their spaces by putting out a hummingbird feeder mm. or planting some native plants in their yard or even just having some native plants in pots on their balcony, mm. right? All those little things add up and, and make a difference. So yeah, yeah, we want to we wanna encourage people and empower people to be able to make those choices in the spaces they live, they work, or, or they play. And then just visiting here, they have an idea of what they might attract in their own yard. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you put in Turk's cap, which is this red flowered plant. Mm -hmm. Hummingbirds love it. So yeah. people are like, oh, what can I do to bring hummingbirds to my gardens? Well, we can say use Turk's cap. And you'll an probably get hummingbirds, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then even it uh, has those little berries that attract other birds as well. Right, right. You'll get kiskadee, great kiskadees, which are this yellow bird with a black and white mask. They'll mm -hmm. come in and snag those fruits. Or maybe if you're lucky, you'll even get a plain chachalaca to come in <laughs> and, and eat a few too. Nice. I'd like to thank John for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you are listening to this episode from. While you're there, I would appreciate it if you left a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of some of the birds discussed here on the podcast, please check out at Looking at Birds Podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds. Birds.